Well, it's a great prayer to pray. Maranatha, come, Lord, quickly. Don't we uh, yearn for that time? The whole creation uh, is groaning and waiting for that uh, glorious, glorious day. Well, in Luke chapter 3, I want to look at verse 17 in particular. But let me read from verse 15. Now, as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So John, again, pointing away from himself, is the position of every Christian, every minister, every preacher, uh, every believer, is to point to the one who can help them. And that's not me, it's not you. We are signposts and we point and let us point clearly to the Lord Jesus Christ and let our lives not contradict what we're actually saying and let not the church's activities and behaviour contradict its uh, central message that there's one Saviour who has transformed us and He we're saying, can transform you also if you trust in him. So he points away from himself and he points to the one who is coming. John Wesley, in that great hymn, Jesus the name, high over all. Tis all my business. Now we do many things. Don't know what all your occupations might be and what your interests and pastimes are. There's one supreme reason why you're still here living and breathing if you're a Christian. And that's to point, to cry, uh, behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. So there's one coming, says John, who's mightier than I. That's who he is. He's one who's mightier than I. What will he do? He's going to do the real work, that which I can only do symbolically, with the washing of water in the River Jordan. It's a picture, the washing away of sins. It's a picture of dying to the old life and sin and rising to new life. John did it symbolically and we have baptismal services here and I think there are a number who are considering baptism as the uh, next step in their Christian walk. And the Bible is very clear. Um, well, maybe not all that clear, but believe and be baptized. Uh, there are many here who uh, are credo-baptists. I'm so glad there are many here who are pedo-baptists. And uh, some say, well, let's sprinkle our children and uh, in trust and hope they will claim the Savior for their own. And others say, well, no, we believe that they should believe first and then take that step of baptism. And constitutionally, I'm so glad that here as a church we accept both because it's not the central point it's only a picture, a necessary picture, but it's only a picture. But there's one coming, says John, who will do the real work. He's the one who will actually take away our sins. He's mightier than I. How much mightier than John is he? Well, he's the very son of the living God. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. Uh, one divine being, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, not three gods, three persons, one being. And Jesus Christ is the one who spoke in the very universe, came into being. Oh, he's mightier than John the Baptist, certainly. He's the creator 
John the Baptist is a, a creature and he comes into this poor world to do a mighty work, to take away our biggest problem. And the biggest problem is sin before a holy God which would sink us to hell forever. Now heaven's where we're meant to be. You know, deep down we're restless even if we're Christians. We're not yet home if we're Christians. We have a deposit, Ephesians tells us, chapter 1, verse 13. We could have looked at that. There's so much that could have been said this morning. Lloyd-Jones, 41 sermons. Uh, I think we did 41 minutes this morning, a minute a sermon, but just an overview. But uh, we're told about a deposit and an earnest guaranteeing, a foretaste, the Holy Spirit of what is to come. Heaven is our home, but we can't go there because of sin. Heaven is pure. What has God done? He sent His Son. He's given the name Jesus, which means Saviour. He's come to take away our sin. To get to heaven, I need a clean life. Perfect life. None of us, none of us can get anywhere near. We might uh, big ourselves up and think, well, maybe I can hit 51%. Hopeless, nowhere near. The eye of God pierces into the hearts and intentions of our lives. And we're corrupt to the very core. We wouldn't even flicker a percentage point. You're not going to... I mean, the exam paper is a mess. So Jesus, what love, what mercy, what pity, what grace. He desires that none should perish. It's not just words. Action. Action. Love the dynamic attribute of God. So moved him. God the Son is sent by the Father and God the Son becomes one of us. Who is Jesus? Fully God, fully man. He's not a half and a half. He's not a mixture of the two. Then he'd be neither one nor the other. But in the one person, Jesus Christ, God becomes one of us. Fully human, fully divine. No sin in his life. He lives a perfect life. Then he dies to pay the penalty for our sin. So we've got to understand what's happening on Calvary. That to pay the wages of sin is death, physical, spiritual, and eternal. There is a hell. God desires that none should perish. So what a demonstration of his love he would send his son. Who would, I mean, just to be here 33 years. But then knowing and setting his face like a flint towards Calvary. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it up again. Of course, he could have, uh, with a mere thought, wouldn't take a word, obliterated those who arrested him. But no, he lays down his life. He's come to fulfill all righteousness. And on the cross, all our sin on him was laid. The Lord God the Father laid on him, God the Son, the pure spotless one, the iniquity of us all. And to balance the books of righteousness, the sins of countless millions of people that we'd be the whole of eternity paying for and never pay off a mere fraction was laid on him. And that cry of dereliction from his humanity, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He's been forsaken that you and I need never be forsaken. And he dies and he cries out that great cry, Tetelestai, it is finished, accomplished, completed, paid. How do we know it's all true? 
Well, he rose again from the dead. His resurrection proves him to be the Son of God with power. Death hangs on to sinners. Jesus had done nothing wrong. And up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. Oh, one mighty and I is coming who will fulfill the picture of baptism in actual reality. Sins can be obliterated, removed, wiped out as far as the east is from the west, buried in the deepest sea, completely eradicated past, present and future. This is the good news about the one who is coming. Why is Jesus coming? Well, this is why I find verse 17 so interesting. John the Baptist says, One is coming who is mightier than I, the sandals of whose feet I'm not willing, I'm not uh, worthy to untie. I baptize with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And then I'll expect John the Baptist to tell us about his work on planet Earth. He doesn't do that. Where does John the Baptist go? Straight to the second coming. <laughs> it's quite remarkable. He goes straight to the return of Jesus Christ. If he bypasses his first coming, or he's going to fulfill my picture of baptism, why? Why? Well, this is why. Because there's a judgment to come. Why was he here the first time? To deal with our biggest problem. There is a judgment to come. So, John the Baptist is inspired now to speak and to go straight on to the second coming. His winnowing fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire and with many other exhortations he preached to the people. When, when will this be that he will gather the barn and burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire? Well, it will be at his return. You see, the first time Jesus Christ came to planet Earth, he came as a saviour to save from sin. When he returns, he comes as the judge to judge sin that has not been dealt with in his first coming. And John sees and understands the point. Why did Jesus Christ come into the world? John understood do we really understand the issue? See, John is very much focused on it here. Verse 7 of chapter 3. Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? When is that? The second coming. He's got it in view. And then verse 9. Even now, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. When? At the second coming. He's focused there. This is the issue. There is a judgment to come. That's what should motivate you and I. It motivated John the Baptist. It's very much why Jesus Christ came into the world. Because there is a coming judgment. And here, verse 17, his winnowing fan, his winnowing fork is in his hand. He's going to clear the threshing floor. He'll gather the wheat into the barn and burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. So there are two things here. I want to say this. 
if you're not yet saved. Listen, Jesus is not an optional extra in life. Jesus is not a lifestyle choice. He is the issue of life or death. So there are many who say, well, it's interesting for you, you're religious. In a sense, I suppose, if you define religion as seeking and knowing God. But true Christianity is not a mere religion, because really, when you think about religion, it's men and women and young people, children, trying to reach God by their own efforts. Christianity is just not that. It's God who has reached down to you and I. And some say, well, you enjoy rugby, you enjoy football, or this or that. Maybe religion's for you. It's not for me. Religion was never for me either. But Jesus Christ is for all. He's not a lifestyle choice. He is absolutely vital. Now, two things I want to say then. First of all, let's think of the picture that Jesus is using, and then let's go on to the reality. The picture that Jesus is using is an agricultural illustration that would have been readily accessible to all, uh, sorry, that John the Baptist is using, is an agricultural picture that would have been familiar to them all. He's thinking about uh, a harvest, a harvest. Uh, the field's there full of wheat that's been growing, whatever grain it might be. Uh, he, the harvester then cuts down the, uh, the, the, the wheat or the crop, and it's gathered then into a barn where it is threshed, and we have the grain then. The grain is there uh, in the barn. And uh, the next thing to do with the grain is to remove the, the chaff. You don't want the, the chaff. And so the, the wheat is threshed on the threshing floor. And the farmer would use something called a, a winnowing fork. It's here called a winnowing fan. And there's the great heap of wheat. And there's a, a, a big barn keeping it uh, dry from the the elements. At both ends of this barn would be a, a big door, one at this side and one at this side, and then you have the pile of wheat, and then the farmer's going to use the, the breeze blowing through the barn. He's going to put his fork through this uh, heap of wheat, and he will throw it into the air. And the wheat, because it's got some weight, will come back down onto the threshing floor. But on a nice breezy day, and the farmer's waiting for that, the chaff around the wheat will be taken hold of by the wind. It has little weight, so it's blown out through the door, downwind. And he continues to do that. His winnowing fork is in his hand. The farmer is working hard and tossing in the air the the wheat and the wheat back onto the ground and uh, he carries on until it's chaff free genuine wholesome grain and uh, as he's doing this outside the barn is a bigger and a bigger and a bigger pile of chaff and when he's finished it's been an exhausting work uh, the uh, the uh, the grain is stored it's going to be used but the chaff what's he going to do 
with that? Well, it's, it's burned away. It is useless. It is burned. I don't know if you've been to our home. Uh, quite a number have been now over the, uh, the weeks and the months, and even before I came to work here, a number have been to our home. It's a Welsh longhouse. The old farmhouses in the middle. Uh, to the left, as you look at the building, is the, the barn. And on the uh, right is the, the buyer, where I don't know quite what went on there, but uh, anyway, it's a Welsh longhouse. And the old barn has been turned into a, a galleried lounge. And uh, the old barn doors have been filled in with doors and windows on either side. But it used to be um, a grain store. That's what it was historically. And the floor where we sit and we talk and we eat and we uh, watch the television, that's the, uh, that's the winnowing floor. Have you been to our home? Have you sat on the winnowing floor? One day a day is coming when this illustration will be completed and fulfilled that we're going to be winnowed. There's going to be a sorting out. But that's the picture that John the Baptist is inspired to use. Well, now let's conclude with the reality of the matter. Uh, he's pointing, is John the Baptist, towards the second coming of Jesus Christ. The final harvest. There are over 2,000 references to the return of Jesus Christ in the Bible. On average, one in every 30 verses speaks on the return of Jesus Christ. Our pastor is soon coming in 1 Thessalonians to some concentrated teaching on the return of Jesus Christ in 1 Thessalonians 4 and in chapter 5. If he goes on to 2 Thessalonians, then uh, virtually the whole letter is about the return of Jesus Christ. It is the one great certainty ahead of us. We were doing in the last chill and chat, the first one that ever we held in the, in the link there, a couple of weeks ago on a Tuesday evening, we were looking at this particular question. Um, in a rapidly changing world, is there any certainty? And we used a quotation by uh, Benjamin Franklin, who famously said, uh, there are only two things that are certain in this world, that is death and taxes. Actually, he's quite wrong, because not all will die. You know that? Not all will actually dire physical death in this world and it's possible to actually evade taxes don't want to get political but if you've got clever accountants I can't afford one I wouldn't want one anyway but there are certain people who can actually and legitimately there are companies that can make billions but actually on their accounts they'll show a loss and they don't pay any taxes it's uh, there are ways of doing that so then Benjamin Franklin you're actually wrong there's only one certainty and that's the return of Jesus Christ. Absolutely. Cast iron guarantee. Governments make promises and then have not the power to fulfill them. When Jesus Christ makes a promise, you can be sure. It has an eternal guarantee. Stamped. Absolutely certain. You can depend upon it. The word of God. Every promise of his word. And 2,000 times, now I mean to emphasize it, 2,000 times it's mentioned in the Bible. And Jesus Christ speaks much about it him, 
self. It is the major focus of the Bible. Why? Why? Well, it's because this is what it's all about. Being ready for eternity. Time is so brief. Isn't it brief? I mean, you who are older, some people here are actually, do you know, older than me. Some people, some quite a bit younger. That little Seth down there. Trying to work out, is it? Is he three months-ish? Yeah, well, yeah, he was that once. But I'm not now. I'm looking at some of you, and you, you'll think along with me, where's the time gone? You remember your surgery down the road there, don't you? And going in there. And what happened? What happened? When I first came to Heath, when I think you were working somewhere in the, in the town there, I went to your offices this week at a CU meeting, and you were, yeah, what's, what's happened? Keith, an administrator at Heath Hospital. Yeah. I think you were a fine athlete when you were younger as well. I think you were quite a fast sprinter, I, I hear. What's happened? What's happened? Time is moving on. It takes its toll. Why is the focus about judgment and the second coming? Because this is what it's all about. Time is so brief. Oh, eternity and the final harvest of humanity. Oh, that time is coming when all mankind were told. We read it there in Matthew chapter 25. These are the very words of Jesus Christ. All mankind will stand before Him. All are going to be raised. The time is coming when all who sleep in the dust of the earth will be raised. Whether you were cremated or lost at sea or buried up at Thornhill, wherever you are, God is able and He will bring back those atoms and molecules and you will be raised. We're all going to be raised. And all mankind will stand before Him. You could picture the scene. Now, there are 7.6-odd billion living on planet Earth right now. When Jesus Christ returns, maybe some football game was going on and uh, Man United were playing Liverpool, I don't know, and uh, it's one all. It's in the, the, the last minute of, of, of injury time and the United player's about to score that, that winning goal. But before the referee can blow a whistle, there's a trumpet. And the ball doesn't cross the line. It's that rapid. England about to win the 2020 World Cup. Well, that's a fine hope, isn't it? And the final ball, he needs a six, and it's heading over the boundary, and the trumpet sounds. It doesn't cross the boundary. It's that rapid. Two people about to get married. They never actually say, I do, because the trumpet sounds. And all those who are alive are gathered. And all those who died are raised and are gathered. And that's the picture there in Matthew 25. All nations, all who ever lived are going to be there. Imagine a vast plain with a mountain range around about it, covered with people and faces. And you'll be there. And I'll be there. As you look around, that's Miss Simpkins who used to teach me in primary school. There's old Hodges, the headmaster from my secondary school. David Beckham. David Beckham. He's there. My, oh my, is that Laurel and Hardy? That's Adolf Hitler, isn't it? Joseph Stalin. Theresa May. Well, oh, look at that succession of prime ministers there. They're 
there. Everybody is there. Vast crowd, and yet it's very, very personal. Very personal. Here. Goodly congregation tonight, and God's speaking to a congregation, but well able to speak, and does speak to us as individuals. There's a hush in the crowd, and then the Lord stands up, and He sends the angels, and there's a separation into one of only two groups. Now, it's not the grain and the chaff here. It's the sheep on his right hand and the goats on the left hand. It's the wheat on his right hand and the chaff on the left hand. And to the sheep, it's come, come. And to the goats, it's, it's depart from me. Now, which are you? There's only one of two groups. It's the only certainty ahead of us. Death and taxes, well, no, maybe, maybe no taxes, and maybe you won't actually face a physical death, but this will happen. This will happen. Do you believe it? Only the Spirit can bring you to your senses to believe it. Which group are you in? Has the work of Jesus been applied to your soul? Have you felt the benefit of His first coming? He lived for you. He died for you. He rose again. Don't hang on to any hopes of religion or your parenthood or your nationality. It's Jesus Christ alone who can do a helpless sinner good. Have you been born again as we learned about this morning? Do you have new life? Are you being sanctified? Is that work going on in your heart? Do you have a new lifestyle? That's what really Matthew 25 is all about. I was hungry. I was thirsty. I was naked, I was in prison, I was unwell. You know, the, the heart of a believer is moved with compassion. And so we had a little demonstration out there earlier, people coming in. Why? Well, we care. We care. Why do we care? Well, because the Lord has shown me compassion, but uh, what you did for the least of these, you did it for for me, and unknowing, we have a changed life. There's a new lifestyle, a new direction. There's a new joy comes into our hearts. There's this unction we thought about this morning. Has that happened to you? If no, well, as we close tonight, trust Him now. Trust Him now. Don't go a step further. The trumpet will sound. The dead in Christ and all the dead will rise and we will be changed. We will be before Him. Are you ready for forever? This life is so brief. Are we ready for eternity? If you haven't trusted Him, trust Him now. If you have trusted Jesus Christ, oh my friends, let each and every one of us stay humble. Stay humble. Keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. Looking to Jesus. We started with this in the Call to worship at the start. Hebrews chapter 12. Looking to Jesus. He will keep you humble. He's mightier than I. I'm not worthy to unlatch the, his sandals. Oh, he's the one. He's the one. Look to him. May he become gloriously large. Vast. And keep me small. And in my place that I am slow to take offense and uh, rich to forgive because I've been forgiven so very, very much. Let's all stay very, very humble and keep our joy in Him. Let's live for Him. Let's point to Him. Let's fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. This great event will happen 
Are you ready for this great, great certainty? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these things you revealed to us. No general revelation could work these things out. So thank you for your revelation to us through your word. May we live in the light of all that has happened historically for us, the events of Bethlehem and the ministry of Judea and Nazareth and Capernaum and the events outside that city wall of Jerusalem and the empty tomb and the ascension, the coming of the Holy Spirit. We look back on those things, but help us to look ahead to that great event that is yet to come, that one certainty, the return of Jesus Christ. Oh, keep heaven and hell ever before our eyes, but may the Lord Jesus Christ always be central. Keep us humbly, joyfully following, we pray. And for any who are listening or who are here right now who haven't yet trusted the Saviour, oh Lord, in your mercy, open their eyes, we pray. Amen. Well, let's sing our final hymn. And will the judge descend? Let's stand and sing reflectively to the, the glory of God. 467. And will the judge descend? And must the desert dead arise? And not a single soul escape his all discerning eyes.
And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all now and forever. Amen.